Well, happy Easter. Oh, we're glad you are here for Riverbend. This is basically our sunrise service. If you know the audience that makes up and the congregants that make up the church here at Riverbend, we are so glad you are here with us this morning. My name is Joe. I serve as one of the pastors here. I want to welcome each and every one of you. And I want to say, if you're a first-time guest or you're coming uh, for the first time in a long time, we're glad you are here. We'd love to connect with you. One of the easiest ways to do that is to fill out a connection card, and those are found in the seat pocket in front of you or behind you, depending on where you're sitting, as well as in the hallway. And it's our desire to get to know you, to welcome you, to hear your story, and to find ways in which you can get connected here at Riverbend. So it would be a great joy for us to have you fill out one of those connection cards and to share with us as much information as you're comfortable. You can put them in the giving box or the offering baskets towards the end of our time together this morning. And also want to let you know that on your way out today, make sure you grab a gift bag if you're a first-time guest, as well as you stick around and get outside to the petting zoo, because that's coming later on at 10 o'clock, all right? I know we're, we're pretty excited about that, uh, but that's coming up too. And in the midst of today, we also, as we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, we're kicking off a brand new teaching series called Love Has One. Say that with me. Love has one. Turn to your neighbor and say, love has one. And this is really an important part of really our understanding of what today signifies. And so what we're going to be doing is going through John 13 through John 21 in this teaching series. And all throughout this ministry season, we've been taking apart the gospel of John and really marinating on it and focusing in on it. And as we think about this idea, love has one. Here's something I want to just ask you as we begin our time. First, what determines if you win? Like, what determines if you win? And if we're going to talk about it in an athletic sense of the word, and I know we've just come through March Madness, baseball season has started as well. I know many of us are excited about that. So what determines if a team wins? Speak, speak, speak to me. The, the score, the winning score, right? Who, who has the most points, right? NBA playoffs is right around the corner. Whoever has the most points at the end of the game, that's who is the victor, right? That's who wins the game. And then we're going to take that idea of winning and even just talk about life. You know, when we talk about winning at life, there's this saying that has been popularized recently, which is simply win the day. And win the day is just this mantra of, I'm going to do the best I can with this day that I have been given. And so there's all kinds of ways that we can look at winning and what it is to be victorious. And as we say love has won, what does that even mean and signify? Because there's another type of winning, and it's the most important kind of winning. It's the winning of doing life according to what God has for each and every one of us and doing it the way he's invited us and asked us to do it. And Jesus models this perfectly for us, and he provides the way actually for us to experience this type of life where we have a relationship with God the Father and empowered by God the Spirit in the name of Jesus and what he has done for each and every one of us. So as we think about that, here's another question for you. How does Jesus enable his perfect love to win in our lives? How, how does that happen? How does he... When, how does he enable us, again, to experience his perfect love in our lives? The question is, how does Jesus enable his perfect love 
to win in our life. So as we even begin this time, I need the kids to help me with just something that we're going to do throughout this time. Every time I say love has won, what I want you to do, I want you to cheer as loud as you can. I want you to turn to your mom and dad, give them a high five, a fist bump. Just go crazy. All right. So on three, we'll practice that. Love has won. Okay, yeah, that, that, will, that will suffice. Hopefully we'll get a little bit more animated as we go forward in our time together. But again, how does Jesus enable his perfect love to win in our lives? That was, you didn't, I was tricking you. You didn't do it. You didn't do it. But that's all right. That's all right. That's, it's Easter. I forgive you, all right? In light of what Christ has done, I'm going to walk in that. But as we think about what it is that Jesus has done for us, I want us to start by looking at what he said before he was actually going to go to the cross, was crucified, buried, and then was going to be resurrected. Listen to what it says here. And I actually want us to read this out loud together and do it to the best of your ability. If you somehow get ahead of us or behind, it doesn't matter, okay? We're going to have a little fun here this morning. It's John 13, 1, 3, 1, 2, 3. It was just before the Passover festival Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in this world, he loved them to the end. And so one of the things that you hear very clearly in John 13, 1, as he was getting ready to leave the world, the earth, and go back to the Father, it says that he loved those that were his, those that were with him to the very end. And I just want you to hear that this morning, that that's true of his disciples that were there with him, but it's true of each and every one of us, that he loves us to the very end of our time here on earth and the the way of life that he calls us to and creates us for is to know that we're made in his image and likeness and that our value has already been described and has been given to us because of what he says of us and has for us. So he loves us to the depths of who we are. From our start to our end, uh, to our new beginning with him when he makes all things new and we celebrate with him and we rule and reign with him if we're in Jesus Christ. But then the part of this too that's really important, I don't want you to miss this. He loves you in the highest of highs and he loves you in the lowest of lows. He loves you in the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. And I don't want you to walk away from this Easter Sunday without hearing somebody tell you that you are seen and that you are of value and you are of worth and that Jesus came to pursue you. Your value has already been given. Image bearer of God who needs to be reconciled back to God. But Jesus has made a way. And so this is good news for us. So as we think about that, here's a couple things. Jesus loves us to the end. Jesus loves us to the end. And I want us to hold on to that because I want you to be thinking about what it is that you're going through, what it is that you're experiencing in your life right now. And I want you to know that Jesus is very near to that. So some of it can be pain, suffering, difficulty. Some of it can be a transition that you're experiencing. Some of it can be an expansion of opportunities with your job or your role or your vocation. He loves you to the end. He loves you for who you are And he loves you so much that, again, he paid a price for you and he wants to walk with you through those things so that we can continue to conform into the likeness of Jesus. But I want you not to miss this, that Jesus loves us to the end. 
And here's the, the next part of this, and this is a question for us. How can we experience the love of Jesus that is one? How can we experience the love of Jesus that has won? And I, I want you to know that as we go through our time today, I, I really want us to walk away with a clear understanding of how this love has won, how we're enabled to be able to walk in it and experience it as followers of Christ. And even those who are here today who are spiritually seeking, you may not have crossed the line of faith yet. And you're like, hey, I'm here because a family member somewhat dragged me here, right? Like, they're like, hey, this is something special we're going to do as a family. We're glad you're here. For whatever reason, you're here. We're glad you're here today. But I want you to hear, again, of this love that has won. I want you to walk in an understanding of what it is that Christ says of you and has for you. And so in order for us to do that, I want us to flip ahead a bit in John's Gospel, John 19. And I want us to hear what it says as Jesus had been crucified. And I want us to be reminded as we come around this historical event, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ, part of the thing that you're going to see very clearly is that there are people here who have responses and reactions that you would have as someone that you love had died. They're going to have a natural response, a natural response in that way. And not only a natural response, but the people that are around the Easter story are people that if you were going to make this story up, you would not involve in, in this story. Because they look, before the resurrection of Christ, very unheroic, very cowardly. They look like people. They look like what people do in life. And this is good news for us because it reminds us that Jesus isn't looking for the spectacular or the perfect. But he is looking for people who are willing to join him in faith and in trust and even when they don't see the whole picture, even when they get it wrong, that they're willing to lean in. They're willing to lean in and to change course as a response to who he is. So listen to what it says here in John 19. It says this, starting in verse 38, Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. So first of all, we see this rich religious leader named Joseph of Arimathea come to Pilate, who was a secret follower of Jesus. He was afraid of the Jewish leaders, it says very clearly. And then in Mark's gospel, it says that he actually comes to Pilate with boldness and asks for the body of Christ. He comes with boldness. This guy who was secretly following Jesus comes boldly to the leader that signed off on the crucifixion and the murder of Jesus. And he's a key part of the story of what we're reading here. But I want you to know, maybe you're here and you're a secret follower. And Jesus is saying, hey, I'm, I still want to use your life. I want to walk with you. I want you to experience all that I have for you. It's time to cross the line and to step in the light and not be secret anymore. And Joseph of Arimathea, he doesn't stay a secret follower. God uses him in some really profound ways after this. But then it goes on to say this, if we go back there, it says this, with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by who? By who? By Nicodemus, the man who earlier had wait, who visited Jesus at, when? At night. And this is a reference to John 
three. He came, he came at night, and I believe he came to talk to Jesus with a focused attention. You know, some would say he did it because he was afraid to be seen with him in daylight. Whatever your, your take on this, that was the conversation that he had with Nicodemus about what it means to be born again. That we're spiritually dead, and we need to be spiritually brought to life. And the only way that happens is to be born again, born from above, be kingdom-minded, as Jesus would say in that passage in John 3, seeking the kingdom in his ways. But I want you to hear both of these people are unlikely characters in it. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's there. He's there with Joseph of Arimathea. And it says that Nicodemus brought a mixture of what? What did he bring? Myrrh and what? Yeah, and about, and, and about 75 pounds. And so they're, they're instrumental in taking the body of Christ and seeing it brought and put in the tomb. It goes on to say this here. It says, taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial custom. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. And so I want you to get this sense. Jesus is actually dead. <laughs> like they're, they're coming to honor this person that they love and have built their life around. But they thought, like you would think, if a family member died. He's dead. All right, I, I want, don't want you to miss that because we get to see it post-resurrection, but oftentimes we forget what it was like in real time for them. And then it goes on to say this in John 20, it says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. And so she goes to the tomb, the stone, which is incredibly heavy and difficult to move out of the way. So that's a miracle in itself. She goes to the tomb. His body's not there. Mary Magdalene, again, the fact that she's in this account, if you're trying to make up something you do not involve in this time and date and age, you didn't involve women in the story. So if you were going to make it up, you wouldn't include this part. But Mary has an instrumental part in this. She's one of the first witnesses to say, he's not here. Like his body's not here. So she goes to the disciples and tells them. And then we learn in John 20 that Peter and John make their way to the tomb. And they're still looking for him. And eventually Jesus shows up to all these disciples. But still they can't believe it. In fact, Thomas says, I won't believe it till I, I see the nails in your hands and in your feet. I, I can't believe it until I see those, those hands and those feet nails, nail pierced. And so as we think about this, this is really in a key part because they are still on the other side of the resurrection, right? Before it actually happens. They don't understand fully what's going on in this moment when we're reading this passage. So as we think about that, here's a couple things for us. Do you, like the disciples, think that death has won? Because what Jesus had told them is I was going to suffer and die, but I'm going to resurrect from the dead. He had told them this was going to happen, but, but they thought when he was on 
the cross murdered, that that was it. That that was the final act in his story here on the earth. And, you know, I'm reminded of even this week as I was sending my wife and my son and my mother-in-law off to Denmark. And so they're at Denmark. My sister-in-law lives in Denmark. Uh, they, they have planted and they pastor a church in Denmark, her and her husband. And it's a big birthday party for our niece who turned 14. So it's a big thing in Danish culture. And I'm here. You know, I, I've, I've survived. I haven't burned anything down. I ironed my shirt by myself. I, I did that. I'm kind of proud. I dressed myself this morning. Uh, all those things. And as I said goodbye to them, and I sent them off, it, it reminded me of what Amy and I experienced when we were dating, because we dated long distance. I'm from Atlanta originally. She's from here. And so for two years, we dated long distance. And sending her off reminded me of that, sending Ray off. And this is the longest since we've been married. I've been away from Amy. And from Ray, as, as he's uh, seven years old now. But as I said goodbye to them, I was reminded that we're going to be reunited. So that's a beautiful picture. But then I thought about what it was like that first Easter with the thought that they weren't going to be reunited with Jesus. They thought death had won. They thought that that was over. And yet we know because of what Jesus has done, we are reunited with Christ because of what he's done for us and what he's accomplished on our behalf. But I want you to think about this in your own life. What is your view and vision of death? Do you think death is the end? Because there's more to life than death itself. There's a life with Christ forever for us in Christ Jesus. And I want you to hear that today because I know many of us, when we come around death, we kind of like get a little like uncomfortable, understandably so. I don't know anybody that's like, you know what? I want to talk about death, you know, like this is, you know, this will be a great converse, conversation starter around the Easter dinner table, right? Hey, what do you guys think about death? You know, uh, but the idea here is that there's more, there's more to come. And this is hope for us because we want to know that in Jesus, death wasn't the end. And that brings us to this part as well, that the death of Jesus was the price he paid. So his love would win. This is the price that he paid so that his love would win. But this wasn't the end. And I want you to understand that as you read through John's gospel very clearly, you see him show up again and again. And as you read through other gospels, you see him resurrected. But one of the best descriptors of what it is that actually took place is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I want us to hear again what it is that took place, what it is that happened that very first Easter and what that means for us as well, because death enabled and, and, and secured that his love would win, but death wasn't the end either. And so listen to what Paul says. This is the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. It says this, for what I received, I passed on to you as first importance. And what he says of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And so what you, you hear very clearly happening is he's saying, hey, I want to pass on to you what's of first importance, that Christ died for our sins. And in case you don't know what the word sin means, it's this, this picture, this is an archery term, where they would use this to describe whenever you would miss the bullseye even if you missed it by a little bit, 
you would sin. And we know, and we know, it's just like that. It's like that, you know? It's like, hey, you missed it by a little bit. That's like an error, error message, right? So it's like you miss, you miss the mark by just a little bit. And by missing the mark a little bit, we have sinned. And see, the mark isn't us or somebody else. The mark is Jesus. He's the standard. His way of life, who he is, and what he's done. But because of what happened in Genesis, we first know that we are made in the image of God and we are meant to walk with God in the cool of the day and experience this perfect relationship with him and with others. But because of Adam and Eve and their decision to sin, to not believe God had their best interest in mind, to go against his design, his intent, his heart for their lives, brokenness entered the world. And so sin came in. And so Christ died for our sins. He died for your sins, my sins, all of our sins. And not only that, but he was buried and then he, raised, he was raised to life on the third day according, as it says, to the scriptures. But this is key to not miss because in the midst of doing that, it wasn't just like he said he was going to do it, but he actually did it. And then he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. So he showed up to people. People actually saw him. And so this is a key for us to not miss because Cephas represents, and, and is another way to say Peter, in the, to the 12. So he's showing up to people. People are seeing him resurrected. It wasn't just a few. And it goes on even further to say this. It says, after that, he appeared to more than how many here? How many? 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. He appeared to 500 people at the same time, resurrected, not in ghostly form, not a hologram, <laughs> like literally he was, he was alive. And we know even as you get to Acts that he has this resurrected and perfect body, which is a picture of what you and I will have when we are joined forever with him because Jesus sits down and he even eats with them, right? We see that happen in John, John's gospel. And we also see that happen in the book of Acts. And that's good news for us because that, that means in the new heavens and the new earth, there's food. You know, I was excited about that, right? And, and in the midst of that, it says that most of, of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And so what it says here very clearly is that he appeared to 500 witnesses. Some have fallen asleep, meaning some have died. But he, he wanted them to know, actually, you could go back to those who were there and ask them what they saw with their very own eyes. He's like, you could actually have a conversation. Hey, did this really happen? Did you see Jesus resurrected? That's beautiful to think about. And then it goes on to say this. It says, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. What a description for Paul, right? And when you know the story of Paul, because again, unlikely characters are in the resurrection story. Paul who was zealous for the things of God, thought he was following the ways of God by taking out Christians one by one, murdering, killing, signing off on them being persecuted. His name was Saul of Tarsus. And on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, there's this bright light that blinds him. And they're like, Lord, who is this? This is what Paul says. He says, it's me, Jesus. Why do you keep persecuting me? And when it says me, he's talking about the body of Christ. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, this 
person who thought he was zealous for God came to terms with who Jesus is. And when he's brought back to those who are followers of Christ, they are so petrified. Why are you bringing a murderer of Christians into our midst? And Barnabas has to say, who's the son of encouragement, hey, this guy, his life has been changed by Jesus. He has been changed by Jesus, and he has encountered the living Christ. And we know that Paul goes on to be instrumental in the spread of the message of Christ. But he was abnormally born. I think about my own life. I was abnormally born as well. I think about the pursuit that Jesus had of my life. A person who ran and rebelled against God and what he had. Because there was a lot of hurt and pain in my own story. My father wasn't in my life. There's a lot of things that were not the way that God intended them to be. And I remember trying to hold on to my life, my way, even though Jesus kept pursuing and running after me, just like he did Paul. And I'll never forget, as a senior in high school, coming to terms with, hey, I'm, I'm going all in with you, Jesus. I'm pursuing you with all that I am. And how that decision to put my trust in him changed the trajectory of my life. In fact, God showed up in so many miraculous ways um, beyond the salvation and the re being reborn in Christ. I was getting ready to go to college, and that was a miracle in itself, uh, because if you knew my high school track record, you would be like, wow, that was, uh, that's a miracle. That's an Easter miracle in itself. And, and I had this friend uh, who was a youth leader recommend I go to this place called Word of Life Bible Institute, and I got my FAFSA form back, and, and I remember getting it back, and like, oh, man, this isn't as much money as I thought it was going to be. And so like, I'm praying about it, and I'm telling friends, and this friend was like, you just got to pray, you got to have faith. And I'm like, yeah, okay. He's like, I don't think you have faith right now. And I'm like, all right, all right, I'm going to have faith, all right? I'm gonna. And so I, I remember praying, and the Lord's like, hey, you need to go to the bank, you know, have a conversation. Like, I, I felt like that was the right thing to do. And I was about to do that. And right before I was about to go out the door, the phone rang. And I picked it up, and it was this, this woman who was married to this youth leader who told me about this college. And she says, Hey, my dad, who's a, a wealthy businessman, wants to sit down with you tonight and hear about your plans to go to college. Tonight? All right. And so I'm like, I'm all like, okay, here we go. I've got to get my pitch. And I'm like, at this point, like, I'm like 17 years old. I'm like, all right, I'm going to try to, how can I impress? And, and so I sit down with, with Max Carey, and I share with him this vision <laughs> as much as I could and understood then. And in the midst of that, he said, hey, you've been through a lot, and I, I want you to know you're really articulate, and I want to send you to this school. I want to pay for it all. I want to pay for the flights. I want to pay for the, the clothes that you need for this school. I want to pay for everything. And in that moment, this is less about me and how great I am, but this is about how great he is, Jesus. I was reminded of the tangible presence of God, and as you walk closer with God, sometimes those moments aren't as many, but there's something that he deepens even in the silence right? Because you need both. You need those tangible moments like, wow, I, I saw your activity in this way. But then I see you here where I'm, I'm being deepened and, and shaped into you. But I want you to hear that he's pursuing you. He's running after you. He loves you. He cares for you. He's made a way and he's inviting you to come home to experience the restoration that you were created for. And so as we think about this, a couple things with this, Jesus defies death and because of his resurrection, his love has won. 
Yeah, I heard a little bit of like a little golf. Yeah, yippee. Uh, yeah, this is good news. This is good news for us, right? Jesus defies death. And because of his resurrection, his love has one. And not only does he defy it, but he defines for us what it means to have victory over sin and death. He shows us the way because he is the way. And he invites us in to this. He invites us in to being a part of experiencing through faith and trust in his life, death, burial, and resurrection to recognize our need for him. Which brings us to the next part of this. Jesus wasn't done at death. He was just getting started. He was just getting started. It's not over, right? He continues. And this historical event changed my life. I believe it's changed many of your lives has changed humanity's life. That's why 2,000 years later, we're still talking about it. We're still talking about it because the resurrection of Christ changes things. Love has won. Love has won. And as we wrap up our time this morning, I want to just give you a couple other verses here from 1 Corinthians 15. And listen to what it says here. It says, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is good news. This is good news. We've got a victory. Again, the perishable is going to be clothed with the imperishable. It's beautiful to think about the imagery here. And even the fact that we have this victory found in Christ. And it goes on to say this here. It says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's not in vain because love has won. It's not in vain because Jesus was not only crucified, but he has risen. He is alive. And so as we think about this, I don't want you to miss today how this impacts not only a right standing with God, but if you are in Christ already, this is true for you as well. That we can be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor isn't in vain. It isn't in vain because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. So here's a question for you. Will you in faith receive the victory that the love of Jesus has won? Will you allow his victory to become your victory? Will you allow his triumph to be your triumph? Because this is the invitation for each and every one of us to receive what it is that he's done for us. But we have a part to play in it. We, in faith, have to receive what he has done for us. I'm reminded this week, uh, I, lost, I lost my voice on Tuesday. I had a case of laryngitis. It was not fun. Uh, but it was a picture for me as I was sending my family off and having to rest my voice, getting ready for today, of that my voice, though it has a part to play in God's story, there's a voice that's even greater than my own. There's a voice that's greater than the voices of the culture and even of those around us, it's his voice. And one of the things that you find in John 11 is where Jesus goes to Lazarus and his family as he's passed away, he tells them to roll the stone away. 
he uses his voice. And they're like, there's going to be a dead stench in this tomb. <laughs> but in faith, they take what he says and does what he says. And they roll the stone away. And then it says that Jesus speaks to Lazarus. Lazarus, come out of the tomb. Come out. And Jesus talks about himself as the resurrection in the life because that's who he is. But I, I want you to hear today, his voice is speaking and instead of pretending he's not, will you just run to him? Instead of running away from him, will you run to him? Will you in faith put your trust in what Christ has done for you and receive the good work that's been accomplished on your behalf? Because his voice is speaking today. And I know many of us here, we're trying to figure out life apart from him. But I want you to know there's a way of life that he invites us into. A way of life that's been fully secured because of what he's accomplished. Not that we could accomplish it, but he's done it for us. And so I just want you to hear this today. And even if you're not ready, if you're not ready, I would love to talk with you. I would love to have a conversation with you. Even to start wrestling with some of your questions. Your questions don't scare Jesus. They don't scare me. Be reminded, the people that were part of that first Easter, they had questions. They're like, man, the person I gave my life to is dead. What happens next? So if you have questions, you have doubts, you're skeptical, you're welcome. You're welcome in because that's all of us. That's the story that we're a part of. And this is good news that causes great joy for all people, what Jesus has done for us. At this time, I want to invite the band to come back up. And as they come up, I just want to lead us in a time of prayer here. And as they get set up and as we think about responding to what Jesus has done for us, I want to invite you to consider who this Jesus is and, and what he's inviting you into. And so let's pray together. Father, right now, we thank you for your love for us. I thank you for what it is that you've accomplished for us. You've made a way. Love has won. And Jesus, I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful for your pursuit of the prodigal person that I am and have been, but of all of us. And so, Lord, I pray for any person here today that needs to, in faith, receive you, that today they would do so. Today they would turn to you. And, Lord, I pray for all of us who are in you already that we would join you in what you're inviting us into. Lord, we're grateful for this good news the victory that is ours in Christ. Thank you that it's added to our account in faith and trust in you, Jesus. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.